Uh, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, we're continuing our series. Working through the book of Romans. And I want to start by talking to you about my favourite superhero of all time. Fictional superhero, Batman. I don't know if I've told you about why I love Batman before, but I'll remind you in case you've forgotten. I love Batman because he has no superpower. Underneath the mask and all the armour, he's just he's an ordinary human being. Uh, but he's working, he's using the abilities he's got to fight for justice. Um, at least that's the, that's the basic image of Batman. I also love Batman, uh, particularly in some of the more recent Batman films. I don't know if you have assiduously watched through all the Batman remakes uh, time after time, but some of the, some of the most recent ones, uh, the Dark Knight series and then the Batman that was, uh, I think, the most recent uh, edition, they are very dark movies. They're not just a glib kind of, there's a problem and the superhero comes and uses his superhero, superhuman powers or uses his science and cool fighting skills to save the day and it's a simple, clean-cut story. They're very dark and one of the key things that they work through, they're unpacking is, is Batman in all his efforts to bring about justice, is he actually any better than all of the corrupt police officers and the villains that he's trying to fight? In the way we see how the way he uses violence, the way he has a single-minded devotion to fighting against these villains, the as you see this unpacked and it it gets to be so that there's a blurriness between who is the villain in the story? Who is the good guy? And there's a question mark hanging over Batman. Has he, has he lost grip on what's good? Is his efforts to save Gotham City actually bringing about significant good? Is he causing more damage? Is he, after all, one of the bad guys? And it's, I think it's compelling in a, in a movie as we see this because it challenges your assumptions, don't you? You go into the watch a Batman superhero movie and you assume Batman is the good guy. We assume there's a clear demarcation. There's the good guys and the bad guys. But these movies, they, they subtly unpick at this until you're asking the question, which, which side do I actually want to be on? Which of these characters do I want to be aligned with in this battle? Who am I cheering for? Who do I want to see win? And one of the, one of the things I think I walk away from these movies watching is, well, there's a sense in which I still want Batman to win because he's Batman and I'm already committed to him before the movie starts and, and all that. Uh, but there's a sense in which I'm really uncomfortable with how he brings about what he does. He doesn't do it in a way that's entirely satisfactory. He is very much himself tainted with the problems. As we, as we look at Romans chapter 2 today, 
what we see in Batman is actually illustrating some of the, the reality that Paul is describing to us, describing to the Roman church of the reality of sin. We've seen Paul's headline statement that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. This is the big news that is driving his whole letter. Uh, but since then, he's been unpacking, oh, here you go, we've seen the righteousness revealed. We've, he's been unpacking the problem of unrighteousness. We've been reading through the rest of chapter 1 as he unpacks the problem of unrighteousness in the world. And today, as we look at these just first four verses, what we see is he draws attention to the problem of hypocrisy. That is the problem of having a very clear dichotomy between the bad out there and the good here, seeing ourselves as right, as the hero, seeing the problem, the sin problem, as being someone else's. Well, let's, let's look together at the verses. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, Paul writes, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Paul takes aim at hypocrisy. Now he starts with a bit of a change from chapter 1. Chapter 1 has been describing the problem of sin in general, in a kind of third-person scenario. But here he starts with the direction you become second person. And the question for us is, which you is he talking about? Who is the you? Uh, many scholars who write about this want to say it's the Jews he's writing to, uh, particularly here. And certainly as the chapter continues, he does address the Jews explicitly in verse 17, for example. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, the, he's speaking directly to Jews at that point. But is that, is that who he's speaking to here? Certainly at the start of the letter, he's introduced things in a much more general way. He hasn't introduced it to the Jews who live in Rome. He said to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And as he as he's continued on, he's talked about being the apostle to the Gentiles and how he wants to continue that ministry in coming to Rome. He's talked about him being indebted to Greeks and non-Greeks. It's, it's almost like he's emphasizing the fact that there are Gentiles who are reading this, who are in the situation in Rome. It seems like he's writing to a church 
that has a mixed makeup. There are some Jewish Christians there, and there are definitely some Gentiles there. So which you is it in 2 verse 1? Is it this general church audience? Well, as we look at the content of what he says, the problem of the self-righteousness, the us-them, good-bad way of thinking, I don't think this is a problem that was just restricted to Jewish believers. Certainly, the Jews had a long history of thinking about their special connection with God, but it's by no means unique to them. And although he does go on to address Jews, he does it explicitly. So I think there's, there's good reason to treat this as though he's speaking to the whole church. They all need to be aware of this problem. Perhaps the you is all those who haven't yet recognised themselves in all the descriptions of the unrighteousness that he's been unpacking in the latter half of chapter 1. That is, he's talking to those who need to hear it. Well, what does he say to this, 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 these people? Well, he says, you therefore have no excuse. This is an echo of what he's already said in chapter 1, verse 20, that people in general have no excuse before God because what is known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people, people in general, are without excuse. If everyone's without excuse, you, Paul says, you are without excuse, particularly when you pass judgment on someone else. points out their judgmentalism is the basis for them knowing that they don't have excuse before God. What does he mean by past judgment? We use the word judgment in lots of different ways, don't we? Sometimes we just mean it to be discerning, to make clear understandings of different things. Sometimes this, this is in the form of just explaining calling sin what it is. Is this the problem that he's referring to? Well, I don't think it's as general as that. Paul has just spent the second half of chapter 1 calling sin what it is. That's not the problem of judgmentalism that he's talking about. It's, as we see later on, it's something that God does, this passing judgment, but that God does according to truth, based on truth. It's the rightful act of God to do. What is this passing judgment? Well, it's the pronouncing on people. It's the assigning value to someone determining their worth, their significance. It's the the attitude that treats them as less because of this perceived 
problems. It's not just kind of recognising that there's sin there, but it's that treating the person in such a way based on that that treats them as different. Now, the problem with this, the problem with the Romans doing this is that they point to people as, judge, pass judgment on people as being sinners in the way that Paul has just described probably. You're blaming people, seeing these, these problems. And yet, Paul says, as you do that, you condemn yourself because you, pass judgment, do the same things. Saying, You are equally guilty. You know these things are right and wrong because you can see it in other people. You're making pronouncements about them. You're being judgmental towards them and yet you're doing the same things. You're not recognising that same problem in yourself. Paul is reminding them, you are not in a different kettle of fish. You're in the same one. You too have no excuse before God and you, like the rest, are by nature objects of wrath. This is the reality for the Roman church. They have the problem of sin. Just as anyone they can point to out there has the problem of sin. Now, it's... It's problematic for the Romans to do this, to be able to point the finger and just kind of cast sin away from from themselves, to see it in others, to not be willing to identify it in themselves. It's hypocrisy, isn't it? But it's problematic because any making these, these pronouncements of judgment is crossing the territory into God's into God's prerogative, isn't it? He is the only one who has the standpoint of objective truth. That's the way he judges in verse 2. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God sees all. And so it's equally, it's problematic when you do this and you do the same things and you think that God in his truly passing judgment, is just going to like ignore you doing it? That's not going to happen. We know God is faithful and just. He's infallible. He's untainted. He's unbiased in the way that he sees the problem, the way that he will judge sinners. I was trying to point out this, this human way, very human way, it's so universal, I think, to be able to just think about us and them, to be able to just think about ourselves as the good guys and them as the bad guys. I was pointing out this is a delusion. And he's warning these readers, you won't escape God's judgment based on your categorizing of things. And we see people think like this 
all the time in terms of how God acts, don't we? You see, people assume that God will look upon them favorably because, well, I'm a pretty good bloke. I've never killed anyone. I'm as good as the next guy. I help out my mates. I'm not a corrupt bully or a con man or haven't, yeah. I'm not kind of one of those low-life scumbags who cheats and rips people off. I've never murdered anyone. It's easy to it's easy to come up with a list of things that you've never done, isn't it? But it's not easy to keep going. Because if I keep going down the list, there comes a point where we all get uncomfortable, don't we? I can't say, I can't say I'm a pretty good bloke. I've, I've only ever always told the truth. I've, I've acted selflessly all the time, always putting others' needs ahead of my own. We can't, we can't say that, can we? I've never thought spiteful things about people. I've never wished... distrustfully of God for things that he says aren't good. We all, we all have the problem with sin. And as we've seen in chapter 1, it's because it stems from our problem of not regarding our Creator not giving him the thanks and glory that he deserves. We've all fallen into that trap. Well, Paul says, he hammers it home with this last verse, verse 4, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience? He's asking them, are you just... Are you so blind in your pride, thinking that you're right, that you're good, that you come under some special banner of God's favour? That you think you're in a different category? And you think that things are going well, that God hasn't smited you down yet. Yeah, treating his kindness and his forbearance and patience as though he approves of you in your sinful state. And you can go on being sinful. Paul's trying to get them to see this. God's patience and kindness, he's holding off from judgment, isn't it? So you can double down on your self-righteousness, thinking that you're the good guy. But this is the opportunity to wake up to the reality that you are a sinner. And this kindness, this time where God isn't judging you as you deserve, ought to lead you to repentance what to lead you to the position where you humbly acknowledge your sin and turn away from it 
There is no good guys, bad guys. There is no us and them when it comes to sin. There's just people who have suppressed the truth about God by their wickedness in various ways. We've had various expressions of idolatry and sexual immorality, disobedience. To pretend otherwise is hypocrisy. As a church, we've struggled with this for 2,000 years, and it's still something we need to be reminded on. Just by the fact that you're being part of church, being here, doesn't make you in the good guys. Just by the fact that you have grown up in a Christian family doesn't make you good in God's sight. Just by the fact that you might have a reputation as being someone who's a good bloke, who's morally upright, people might trust you. That's not an indication that God sees you as righteous. He judges truly. He sees every inner thought. So we need to ask ourselves now, as Christians, as people in church, has God's kindness, has his forbearance and his patience, has that been an opportunity for you to repent? Has the fact that you are not yet smited into oblivion, or worse, the fires of hell, has that led you to admit you need to be made right in God's sight? Because you're not by nature. It is the riches of God's kindness, isn't it? That he doesn't give us what we deserve straight away. And particularly when we realize what it has cost him to be kind in this way, to be patient, to ultimately be merciful to sinners. It's cost him the death of his own son. For God to carry out his intention of not judging sinners as we deserve. Instead, pouring out judgment onto his own son. Shocking cost. The cost of God's kindness to us. Friends, if, if you haven't grappled with this, please don't kind of just let it brush off. But think it through. Hear the warning from Romans. We can't just think of the problem of sin as being out there, as it is well and truly in here and in here. That's why as a church, when we gather, we pray a prayer of confession. Every week, almost every single week, we pray a prayer of confession, which is meant to ground us in this fact that we come here, all of us as sinners. No us and them, in terms of sin, we're all on the same page. We say the Lord's Prayer, and it has the line in it. Each time we pray, forgive us our sins, because we're sinners. 
So as a church, as, as people who are seeking to be repentant sinners, how do we maintain an appropriate posture of humility? How do we avoid the trap of passing judgment on others in the way that Paul's warning about here? Do we need to stop talking about sin? Well, I think not. Paul talks plenty about sin. That's not the issue. Do we need to stop speaking publicly about sin, about maintaining what the Bible says is, is God's design for life, how it works best? Are we not to advocate for that within our society? Well, I don't think that's true either. Now, we need to keep standing up for what's right and true and good. We need to keep speaking about true morality as God has revealed it. But we must do it in a way that recognises we as a church and we as individuals share in the sin problem. That whenever we speak about sin, it's our problem. It's not your problem. It's not the world's issue out there. It's not society's issue. It's something that we own, that we ourselves share in. We too deserve to be objects of God's wrath. Now I'm reminded at this point of Jesus' example, though he was the one who didn't have the sin problem, the only one, that what was his attitude towards sinners? He never cultivated an us and them way of thinking, did he? He never tried to separate himself from sinners and hold them at arm's length and cast them in a different different category. No, he was he was happy and driven even to associate with those other people rejected as sinners. He was willing to hang out with the tax collectors with the women with dubious reputations, the outcasts, those shamed by the society because of what they had done. And when we engage with sin, we need to do it without backing ourselves away into a corner as though we are somehow immune. And not kind of leaning into fear or distaste or just our general discomfort with sinners. Because we are the sinners too. It doesn't make sense if we're equally sinners. All right, please hear Paul's warning. All the things we've seen in chapter 1, the problem of sin is our problem. And of course, he's setting up for showing us the glorious solution to the problem of sin. It's going to come in chapter 3, where he gets to unpack it in, in great depth. But until we appreciate how much this is our problem, we won't be ready to appreciate 
how much Jesus and what he has done is our solution. That's ironic, isn't it? The, the, the church doesn't recognize that we have the problem of sin, that we are the ones preventing ourselves from appreciating Jesus as our saviour. Romans 2, maybe it's a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit of a bleak view of humanity. Maybe it's harder to hear. Maybe it is like the grittier Batman films. Darker. But it clarifies helpfully for us the situation of the bad guys. Reminding us that when it comes to people before God, there is no good guys and bad guys. All of us are the bad guys. And all of us are in need of the truly good hero who can save us. It's not Batman. It's Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Even some of the bits of your word that are darker and uncomfortable for us. We thank you that you speak the truth for our good. Please help us to hear the truth. Please protect us from falling into that, that trap. Thinking of the sin problem as being out there. Keep reminding us of our sin as individuals, our sin as a church. That before you we only stand righteous because of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name.